This podcast is for general information only. It is not intended as a substitute for general health care services. If you have medical conditions, you need to see your doctor. Use of this information is at the user's own risk. Welcome to FitRx with Dr. Greg Dennis. Join me as we challenge the standard sick model of healthcare. This is your source for everything health, wellness, prevention, fitness, biohacking, and more. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of FitRx. I'm your host, Dr. Greg Dennis. This is a very important episode, perhaps the most important episode that I've done. I've been pretty quiet uh, on my podcast about COVID. I haven't really talked about it much. I have a little on my social media, but not much on the podcast. But I feel like we just need to discuss some things as there is just a lot of misinformation out there, uh, obviously from the media, but unfortunately from the medical community, there's a lot of fear. And so I just feel like we need to uh, look at it from another side. And this is certainly not to uh, downplay COVID and those that have been affected. I've, uh, I lost a good friend and colleague, um, you know, late last year to COVID. And so certainly sympathize with those who have been affected. Uh, but again, there is just a lot of misinformation and fear out there, uh, you know, I want to discuss today. And so my guest to discuss that with us is Dr. Jim Meehan, MD. He is a former ophthalmologist and preventative medicine specialist with over 20 years experience uh, and advanced training in immunology, inflammation, and infectious disease. He has his own clinic um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He is a former editor of the medical journal, Ocular Immunology and Inflammation. He has peer-reviewed thousands of medical research studies. Uh, so he is used to looking at the data. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I learned about him when there was a town hall meeting a couple of months ago about the vaccine mandate and he spoke. Uh, and then I started following him and realized he had written a book about uh, wearing masks and why actually the title of it is why wearing a mask makes healthy people sick. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. So um, kind of a long introduction, but Dr. Meehan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. Okay, well, let's get right to a lot of important issues. So first, I want to talk about masks. And so there's, you know, these mask mandates that now that we're spiking again, the mask mandates are coming, you know, kind of back into play. And there's always been a question in my mind about are masks beneficial, but then you kind of take it to the next level and say, not only are they not beneficial, but they could be harmful. Um, so, so just kind of talk about that and maybe a little bit about the evidence that you listed in, in your ebook about where you got that from. Yeah. And, you know, everybody can download. It's free. The ebook is free. I do that. Uh, I did a deep dive because my, my superpowers, I'm a former medical editor. I, I, my superpower is discerning fact from fiction in the medical literature. And everybody should understand that there's a great deal of fraud bought and paid for, you know, pseudoscience that's being published in our 
our medical journals. In fact, we've seen lots of it transpire during this pandemic. Um, you know, pharma buys uh, researchers and you know research research organizations, and they can get them to to create anything that they want, just like they did. And I can't prove that there was a pharma connection to the Lancet paper that tried to discredit hydroxychloroquine. The um, you know, Dr. Desai from Surgisphere uh, was the, the, one of the authors that supposedly aggregated data from 122 hospitals all over the world, 97,000 patients that showed that hydroxychloroquine was increasing um, heart arrhythmias and, and causing severe adverse events. And what we learned two weeks later as the peer review process really engaged was that that was a complete piece of science fiction. It was a fabricated um, narrative. There was no, uh, no evidence that the data aggregation, the complex process of, of collecting 97,000 patients data from 122 hospitals had ever transpired. But unfortunately, that lie was, you know, halfway around the world before the truth got out of the gate. Um, the authors were exposed for this fraudulent piece of research published in one of our elite medical journals, The Lancet. So we've seen so much of that. Um, but the when it comes to masks, this was something. Number one, I'm a. I started my career in ophthalmology, did over ten thousand surgical procedures. I've worn a surgical mask um, most of those times. But a lot of people don't realize that the surgical mat. We don't really wear surgical masks in the surgical center and the operating room because we're trying to um, prevent ourselves from transmitting viruses or catching them from the patient because we know that doesn't work. We have 100 years of science that says those surgical masks are um, capable of blocking you know, viruses that aerosolize, for example. We know that surgical masks don't work against influenza. We have uh, about 14 randomized controlled trials that um, have looked at that issue. Um, we know that uh, surgical masks in the operating suite don't even reduce wound infections. A lot of people don't realize that. They often, you know, they often um, say, well, if masks don't work, why do surgeons wear them? You know, and I call that an argument of false equivalency. It's, uh, you know, there's, there's multiple reasons why we wear them, mostly to prevent splashes from, the, uh, from tissues, bodily fluids from our patients, or, you know, simply just... Um, us dribbling slobber into a wound cavity, if you will. But they, they're, we're not wearing them to prevent the transmission of infectious disease. Cochrane Collaboration has looked at this issue many times and um, published in 2012 and 2014 randomized um, meta-analysis, rather, of multiple randomized controlled trials that say surgical masks are not good forms of source control in the operating suite, and therefore many clean surgeons, you know, uh, doing clean surgeries nowadays, meaning there's not a lot of, of high-powered tools, drills, bone saws, et cetera. They don't wear surgical masks in the operating suite. Where they do, it's because it's more for tradition than it is anything else. But, um, you know, we all, when we, when we saw our public health agencies coming out early in, you know, February and March and saying masks don't work, uh, Fauci said it, uh, the Surgeon General said it, the CDC and the World Health Organization were aligned on that point. And then in March, you know, really about a month later, they, they 
flip-flop. They 180 degree turn and they started telling us we should wear masks. Well, that's when I started analyzing the clinical research. And I looked at everything that I could find on the evidence of masks. And that evidence was overwhelming. We had done a lot of randomized controlled trials, controlled trials in um, uh, healthcare populations, nurses, doctors. There were a few community studies, but every one of those, um, the highest level of, of evidence was, was saying, not only do they not work, but they create, for example, um, 82% of healthcare workers in a, uh, in a population of 16, 82% of healthcare workers in a large population in Korea were developing de novo headaches after wearing a mask on an average of about 6.2 hours. Um, they, uh, there, there were multiple studies that show that cloth masks didn't work. In fact, um, one of the meta-analyses of, of masks showed that cloth masks actually increased the rate of infection by influenza by 13 times. So we had all this evidence and I get, but I, but they changed, you know, Fauci was saying now wear a mask. The CDC began saying wear a mask. So I went looking for the new science that would have, you know, um, supported that position. And it wasn't there. Many people were kind of asking the same, the same question. And what we found was um, Deborah Cohen, a, a, a journalist with the BBC in England found out that the um, in directly questioning members of the World Health Organization that it had more to do with lobbying. They were lobbied by interest groups um, and it didn't have anything to do with new science. So, you know, um, we had this and then we, we, you know, we saw we just kept hearing it's just a mask. You know, it's just it's just 15 days to flatten the curve. It's just a mask. It's just you know, quarantining at home. It's just shutting down your business. But the just a mask thing really kind of irritated me because I, I knew the problems with masks. Um, you know, you're, you're blocking respirations. You're decreasing arterial oxygen. There's a study on 137 surgeons um, that has showed that significant declines in arterial oxygen and decline in fine motor control. Something that I was very familiar with because when I had to wear a mask, I do microscopic surgery in the eye, on the surface of the eye, in the anterior chamber. And when I would wear a mask for a prolonged period of time, the you would get that brain fog. You'd start to get that very subtle tremor. And I, I could feel the physiologic effects. And I was very familiar with um, the medical literature from Cochrane and the meta-analysis. So, you know, as I heard our public health agency starting to push this stuff and and starting to see people wearing masks in the community that's when it really the lights went off because if you've ever watched somebody wearing a mask in the community greg they you know they're not trained the way we are um they're not wearing it in a sterile fashion they're many times they're reusing masks that are not designed to be reused um when you when you wear a mask improperly it becomes a dangerous intervention and has the potential to cause um, not only the oxygen and CO2 changes in your in your blood system, but it also has the potential to become a wet, moist, warm Petri dish that starts to grow uh, multiple colonies of bacteria, fungi. In fact, 
a study done in Germany and in um, kindergarten children showed that when a child, they, they would hand out masks at the beginning of the day, pick them up at the end of the day. Um, children were wearing them about six hours per day. They would take the, the um, mask, send it to the lab. And on average, 82 bacterial colonies and four fungal colonies were growing on that mask. And those children who were, you know, increasing their respiratory rate and tidal volume to overcome the in inhibiting effects of the mask were breathing that type of material, those bacteria and those fungi potentially deep into their lungs. And I, I you know, that and I was starting to see children in my my clinical practice that were were having you know bacterial pneumonias. Many of my colleagues all over the United States were starting to report. I got a lot of colleagues in in emergency medicine, bacterial pneumonias starting to really explode, oral ulcers, chronic sore throats. So all of these uh, manifestations, uh, at least potentially of the chronic exposure. I mean, you know, the human mouth is full of pathogenic potential, you know, organisms. And, you know, if we're just capturing everything uh, on the inside of that mask, not only what is in our mouth, but what we're picking up and contaminating the mask with from the environment, and then potentially breathing that into our airways, into our lungs, you know, you, you have to ask yourself, well, Surely somebody has tested the safety of masks. Surely our CDC, NIH, somebody would have done a safety study, especially when we started um, recommending this intervention for children, right? But Greg, they didn't. There, there is no safety study that has been done to make sure that this universal intervention that we were asking the population and especially young children to do had been demonstrated to be safe. And, and then, you know, what they had done which was they had accumulated about 70, 72 pieces of medical research that the CDC was using to justify and support masking in the, in the community. And those 72 research articles were, are what I call a steaming pile of garbage-picked low-level evidence. And what, what your listeners need to understand is that in medical research, not all research is created equal. You have, you know, a pyramid of, of the hierarchy of evidence, we call it. At the top of the pyramid are systemic reviews and meta-analyses of multiple randomized controlled trials. Um, at the bottom of the pyramid, the lowest level of evidence are, you know, expert opinions and case reports. And then just right above that are observational studies. And every one of the CDC's um, 72 references to support masking were low-level retrospective observational studies, for example, or, or they were laboratory mechanistic, you know, experiments where they put masks on mannequins or the infamous um, putting a mask over a hole between two hamster cages. You know, that's interesting science for like a middle school project, but it's not it's not the high level policy grade evidence that we should be working from. So in, in my article and, and um, I, what I did is I, I looked at both sides of the issue. I said, give me the, let me look at the best evidence they have. Let me look at the best ev evidence that I think supports the oppositional view, which has become my view 
um, because I, I think the, the evidence is so overwhelmingly clear that masks don't have a scientific evidence base that justifies their universal recommendation for community wear. Well, that begs the question then, I guess, why the mask mandate? I mean, where did this come from? Because it sounds like at best masks are neutral, um, meaning they don't do anything at worst. Right. They're, they're harmful. That's uh, right. And, and so, you know, why are they mandating this? Where did this come from? Yeah, well, I, I think that, you know, it's um, I guess my best explanation of that is that politics have universally subverted science during this pandemic that this is more about politics and control. Um, I think, you know, you've heard some analysts say, well, you know, the masks are a symbol uh, that keeps everybody aware that there's there's a virus out there. So symbolically, the mask, you know, might have some value to signal to everyone in the community that, hey, we've got something to worry about, be careful. Well, you know, that's fine if we need a symbol to, make everybody aware, but I think that kind of infantilizes the, um, you know, the, the human population. We're, we've beat a lot of pandemics in our time and we never had to use masks. And, and, you know, this is the first time experiment. A lot of experiments have been perpetrated on the, on the American popular world population during this pandemic lockdowns, you know, never before been done uh, masking healthy people, um, you know, multiple things that we have done have just never been done before. And in my opinion, they're clearly failed experiments. But, um, you know, I think it just comes down to um, trust the CDC, trust the government, you know, trust me, I'm with the government type mm -hmm. stuff. And I don't trust our CDC. I think they <laughs> yeah. have been long been captured by industry. You know, there are there are insiders and whistleblowers at the CDC that have uh, many times over many years exposed the CDC's collusion with industry. I think they're pharma captured. I think the CDC right now is a puppet. It's an agency that is a puppet whose puppet masters are pulling their strings to, you know, protect this ab absolutely failing um, genetic therapy disguised as a vaccine, mislabeled as a vaccine. I think they're, they're protecting the monolithic vaccine industry. I think they're protecting their, um, their, the profit streams of the pharmaceutical industry. I think that there's, you know, that uh, our federal agencies, the FDA to the CDC to the NIH, they have just demonstrated that, you know, they are not working in the public interest. They're working in industry interests. They, you know, if they do their job, if they um, kind of tow the party line, the pharma line, and they, they play well with pharma, guess what waits them as a reward for their, you know, their loyal service. They get a, you know, they get a big job with a big paycheck and benefits yeah. um, in pharma. I mean, look at Scott Gottlieb, that guy, I mean, you know, he was, he was the director of the FDA under the, the Trump administration. There's no politicians that are not guilty of this. So he works for the FDA. Where is he now? He's, he's with Pfizer. Um, Julie Gerberding, the, the, the director of the CDC several years ago, um, she, she went to Merck and became their um, immunization program director. You know, big salary, big benefits, you know, many zeros in the end of, uh, of every number that was on her paycheck. That, that revolving door has become a real problem. And um, these 
agencies that we pay for the the employees in our federal agencies that we that the taxpayer funds and pays their paycheck they're just not working for us anymore um but you know the, the reality is we don't pay most of their paycheck anyway 65 percent of the fda is funded by pharma in the yep. pharmaceutical divisions yep. so yep. I, I think this is the problem is you know we're trusting people that aren't working for us and then you got lawmakers then you know there's everybody gets that little that you know that power and control thing man you know they really think they're trying to serve the public and protect them and they gotta they they absorbed and and um it, were indoctrinated with a bunch of nonsense that they heard from the cdc and and then they just you know they put on those pants and they run with it and they get so you know they get so confirmed in their biases um and you know and then at the same time the other part of this equation is doctors like myself and peter mcauliffe and pierre corey and you know independent physicians and scientists were speaking up throughout this pandemic but guess what most people can't has never heard of them and never heard from them because we started getting censored heavily by big tech yeah. and so that unholy collusion between big tech government and big industry especially the pharmaceutical industry is why there is so much confusion yeah. and why we're still continuing to go down this road of you know ma uh, uh, masking our children which i think is tantamount to child abuse quite honestly um i we're still going down that road because a real true scientific debate and a weighing of the evidence on both sides has simply not occurred. Yeah. Trust the science. That's what I keep hearing. Right. Uh, trust the science. And no, I don't trust the science uh, because the science quote science is, I feel like why we're in this predicament to begin with. That's why we're so unhealthy as a nation because of the science. And you can go back to, right. the, yeah. you know, the, uh, the, our the dietary, food our, our food pyramid, our dietary recommendations. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way that, that we practice medicine and that we treat chronic disease. And uh, that's why I got out of the sick care of medicine as I'm sure you did as well. That's same uh, thing here. And, and, yeah. and so, no, I, I don't trust the science. Um, right. And, and I'm because the science is in quotations and it's got a trademark by it. That's it. And, you know, and, and Anthony Fauci is the one that copyrighted and trademarked it. I mean, he thinks he is science and, you know, I, I you know, I, I unapologetically say he's the biggest liar in the history of medicine. He's been he's been caught red handed in his lies with his email dumps that were Freedom of Information Act were able to obtain. He's telling his own staff not to wear a mask, you know, as he's also colluding with China um, in the and Ralph Barrick and Peter Daszak and the rest to um, fund this gain of function function research that we're all paying a very all everyone in the world is paying a serious cost for and a price for because you know arrogant um you know scientists like anthony fauci had to do it their way but yeah i mean the science is is corrupt yeah, it's bought no it's paid for yeah. and and it's it's corrupt and science is never settled it's a it's a debate it's got to be a constant discussion and discourse i may be wrong you know, Peter McAuliffe may be wrong. Pierre Corey may be wrong. Um, but I'll tell you what, they've got some scientific evidence before them. You know, they're very, we're all doing our, our best to protect our patients because why? Because people like you and I, we honor our oath. We took an oath to do no harm. We can make a, you can make a lot of money in medicine playing the game that a lot of these doctors like to pay. You take it, you pay a big price when you want to step out of that 
Rockefeller medical business model and you want to, you know, instead of a pill for every ill, instead of, you know, opioids, benzos and, you know, about four other psychotropic drugs um, for the symptoms of disease, we're focused on treating, diagnosing, finding and treating root causes. Yeah, that's, you know, and often that's diet, exercise, targeted supplementation, hormone replacement therapy. It's, you know, repurposed drugs like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, fluvoxamine. You know, that's what medicine is about. That's what I love about medicine. And that's, yeah. We'll get into that here in just a minute. But um, (laughs) you you mentioned the vaccines. And so that's Mm -hmm. where I got uh, familiar with you was, again, at a town hall meeting where there were a lot of people upset because uh, their employers, you know, have this vaccine mandate now. Uh, I used to be in corporate medicine, um, you know, a big one here in town, won't, mm-hmm. uh, won't say the name, but they uh, uh, have a vaccine mandate. If you do not get it by September 30th, um, you're terminated. And so right. they are going to lose a lot of nurses. They're going to lose some physicians and they already have a nursing shortage. Uh, they are turning down um Uh, medical exemptions they're denying them and so what what is your thoughts on on the vaccine and these vaccine mandates well first and foremost um i believe in the clinical trial process i believe that we should never turn the human population no matter what the reason into a you know into a medical experiment we are we are Um, experimenting on the population with untested uh, vaccines or gene therapies that we have no idea what the long-term history is going to be. Vaccine development takes a minimum of seven to 10 years. And we're a long ways from that. We had two months of data. And by the way, the data that we have, we're getting by press release from the manufacturers themselves who are running their own studies. And these are manufacturers like Pfizer that have been found guilty in, in trial courts many times for putting dangerous drugs onto the market based on fraudulent um, studies, preclinical trials. I don't trust them, never will. I think you got to look at the pharmaceutical industry like they're the cartel that is, you know, will do almost anything to make as much money as possible. Um, We've seen it just time and time again. And And we're allowing them to create a vaccine behind closed doors without any scrutiny. You know, oh, but we've got a, they have a review board of the independent review board that's supposed to oversee these things. Come on, man. How many, oh, I sound like Joe Biden there. Come on, man. But how many times have, I mean, you and I know how these boards work. Those people are on that board because everybody knows how they're going to vote and what they're going to do. And they're going to look the other way, just like the ACIP committee of the CDC does. Just like so many, um, like the FDA's um, Verbeck, group that was overseeing and administering the EUAs for the Pfizer vaccine. I watched that committee meeting. That was a kangaroo court. Doctors were that wanted to ask questions and express their concerns were shut up. So that's how these say we've allowed the pharmaceutical manufacturers multiply guilty of crimes against humanity um, to operate behind closed doors with no peer review, no scrutiny. And the little data that we get, we get by press release. And, and then and we get two months of that and they're out on the market being injected into, you know, our sons and daughters and uh, mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters. And and then the other part of it is just, you know, I follow the data. We make decisions in science based on the data. 
I followed very closely the vaccine adverse event reporting system, even though it's a very broken system, probably captures uh, 1% of all vaccine injuries. Yep. And if you look at the, the numbers, they were, they were growing like I've never seen the number of deaths were growing like I've never seen deaths grow. Today, there are over 13,000, almost 14,000 deaths. And if that's 1% or if that's even just 10%, um, even 50%, we shut down vaccine rollouts like the swine flu vaccine in the, in the 70s for 25 deaths. And here we are in the thousands. Steve Kirsch, um, an entrepreneur that's been very active in this, um, he's recently submitted a paper that estimates based on the data from all over the world, that there have been at least 150,000 deaths. And he's got a very compelling argument. Je Dr. Jessica Rose contributed to that paper. They did a deep analysis based on a lot of different factors and modeling and says, you know, based on the data that we're seeing here, uh, and there's also a whistleblower, a CDC whistleblower that um, uh, blew the whistle on the CDC's not reporting about 45,000 deaths and the 10 other databases that they're capturing all this vaccine adverse event information in. So there's all of that. You know, we um, we started gaining more information. Um, we had to, you know, our government, number one, um, did not require adequate toxicology testing. No, uh, no genotoxicity, no genetic toxicity studies were done. And that's in the the, the actual um, reports that each manufacturer had to file with Pfizer. No genetic toxicity studies, inadequate reproduction, reproductive toxicology studies. Our government didn't even require what other governments did require of the vaccine manufacturers. And in particular, Japan told Pfizer, you're not going to sell your vaccine here unless you provide us a biodistribution study. Our government didn't require Pfizer to do a biodistribution study. And what that is um, Greg, I know you know what it is, but your listeners. So when you inject a vaccine, they told us, hey, it's going to stay in the arm. It's just going to stay in the, the muscle of the arm. But when we do these these new drugs and and uh, vaccines, we label them with a fluorescent um, marker and inject it and then see where that where that ends up in the body. Usually you do it in animal. What you always do it in animals. And um, and so when that biodistribution study was done and that information was provided in secret to the Japanese company country until we got it by a Freedom of Information Act. And, and in fact, a Canadian physician did that. Um, we found that the that not only had they lied, but they had really told us a whopper because the biodistribution study showed that that the vaccine lipid nanoparticles were found widely distributed with throughout the body in the bone marrow in the um, kidneys in the brain and very concerning and high concentration in the ovaries um, so these are very you know biologically active metabolically active tissues that are going to now be exposed to the lipid nanoparticle itself delivering an mrna um, payload that is going to be, you know, expressed and put on the surface of the cells. And then our immune system is going to attack that cell as if it's, it's infected. Cytotoxic T cells are going to identify that, that spike protein that is placed on the surface of that cell. And it's going to say, this one's got to go, we got to kill it. And they destroy that tissue. So if you've got MRNA um, spike protein 
markers on your, you know, the brain tissue, if you have it on the ovarian tissue, are we going to have long-term side effects that look like um, spongiform encephalopathy, you know, serious brain diseases? Are we going to destroy the, the ovaries, the, the hormonal production, and even the ability to mother children in our, especially in our young, you know, young college students that are being coerced to get this vaccine. So, and then the, the final thing that I would add to this, you know, my, my many concerns about the vaccine is we have subsequently learned that the spike protein was the wrong target. The spike protein by itself, that the mRNA vaccines are turning our cells into a production factory for, that that spike protein by itself is, a, is an inflammatory toxin that can mediate all the symptoms of the disease, the inflammatory coagulopathies, um, it, that that spike protein injected in, created in our cells after the injection of these mRNA vaccines or even the adenovirus vector vaccines, that those will um, by themselves induce a multi-system inflammatory syndrome in the body. So I think, and I think it's just clear we chose the wrong target. The, the spike protein itself can cause disease. And, um, and then you've got, you, you got the vaccine escape problem, you know, vaccinating with a non-sterilizing vaccine in the midst of a pandemic is, you know, that's vaccinology 101. That's, you don't do that because you know it's going to put a selective evolutionary pressure on that virus to escape suppression by the vaccine. You, we are creating our own worst nightmare with the spike protein vari variants. Which, that yeah, we're I was going to say, we're seeing it right now. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we're lucky the Delta is more transmissible, but not more lethal. And we're really lucky in that regard. But every day that we continue this, um, you know, continue to push this failing vaccine into the, the arms of more and more of the population, we risk creating a, a not only more transmissible, but a more lethal vaccine escape mutant, i.e. variant that could decimate the population. Yeah. Yeah, there are certainly when, when people ask me about the vaccine, you know, there are a lot of question marks. And that's what I tell them. I say, yeah. we don't we don't know. I mean, yeah. we don't know long term complications. We don't know a lot of things. And, and right. we don't we don't know. Now they're talking about a booster shot. We don't know how long it's going to last. Um, we don't know how effective it's going to be. There's 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 too many question marks in my mind. Right. And, and you're mm -hmm. absolutely right on the adverse effects. Um, I bet. 95% goes unreported because we've tried to report some and, and it's a nightmare. I mean, there's so that, much red tape. That and, and, system is broken, Greg. Yes, I mean, and, yeah, if you try to report to VAERS, it's a 30-minute yeah, nightmare. Yeah. It's, and you know, it's like it was made in the 80s and it hadn't gotten any better yeah. since then. So we're we're busy trying to treat people and mm -hmm. so we're not going to take that time to report. And, and I bet, well, when people go in the emergency room you yeah. know, with an adverse uh, event from a vaccine, ER docs, you know, nobody there is reporting them. So yeah, I, the majority no, of, yeah, the majority of adverse events are getting unreported. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we know that that, that was studied in 2010 by the Harvard, um, using the, the Pilgrim, Harvard Pilgrim system. They study the VAERS, the vaccine adverse event, event reporting system. And they determined that that's, that's where we got the data that it's capturing less than 1% yeah. of the injuries. Um, and they they had a way to improve it and to capture data from the various, you know, medical record systems all over the United States. 
but the CDC wasn't interested. They wanted to maintain VAERS as a broken system that captured a small fraction, a small percentage of the problem so that it would never come to full public awareness. That's the only conclusion that I can come to. And that, in fact, that's the conclusion that the authors of that Harvard Pilgrim study came to as well is, you know, when, when they proposed a solution, the communications were immediately cut off from the CDC. Um, and, and now they're, now, even though we are capturing a lot of deaths, over 13,000 deaths in the VAERS system, I don't think we're seeing even the tip of the iceberg because I'm, I'm working with a group of deep tech analysts of the VAERS data. They're at least three months behind, Greg, in reporting data to that system. And it looks like the data is being curated um, in ways that do not make sense. Um, records disappear and they're never seen again, but we have, you know, we have archives of it. So we know when they remove a, what looks like a very reasonable report has, you know, filled out by a doctor and then it disappears. Why? Because it's inconvenient because it didn't have any other reason. I've reviewed a lot of these things. I'm very concerned what's going on with a vaccine adverse event reporting system. Again, I just think there's too much, you know, there's not enough transparency and there's, yeah too much fraud and corruption going on. What's your advice on these people um, who are going to be losing their jobs because of this vaccine mandate? And I, I talk right. to them almost on a daily basis and I feel bad for them because this is their livelihood. And unfortunately, a lot of these are nurses who have been on the front line the last year and a half treating these patients, trying to do the best, mm -hmm. they, best they can. And now yeah. the administrators are turning their backs on them. If you don't want the vaccine, you're out of here. Uh, yeah. You know, what do you tell these people? Oh yeah, get a get an attorney because you're going to win that case. They are trying to coerce and mandate you into getting a an experimental use authorized vaccine, and and even though even now that the Pfizer vaccine, well, um, the the FDA has approved uh, the new version of the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine called Comirnaty or Comirnaty Comirnaty. Yeah. So anyway. That one's not out yet. That's not available yet. That's not in wide distribution. We're still using the old vaccine um, that is still only under emergency use. But the, the federal regulations on emergency use authorizations require that you be allowed to opt out. So that's one thing. Get an attorney. Um, everybody should you know, consider filing a religious exemption. If you are a, a person of faith and you don't want to be injecting your, yourself with a um, vaccines that are used, developed, quality controlled with uh, aborted fetal cell materials. Both of the mRNA vaccines use those cell lines that were derived from a fetus that was harvested in the, um, in the 1970s. And they're, they're used for the development and quality control of the mRNA vaccines. Now, the Johnson & Johnson Janssen vaccine is grown on a, a cell line that was um, derived from an aborted fetus in 1985, an 18-week-old fetus, and it was retinal tissue. And, and that vaccine has on the package insert the fact that there's a significant amount of human DNA microfragments and residual cellular proteins. So they're just like with the varicella vaccine, just like with the rubella vaccine, we are injecting ourselves with um, the tissue that was derived from a child that was aborted and, you know, vivisected 
its tissues harvested so it could become the substrate for the manufacturing process of vaccines. And that's a fact. That's not, they can argue and they often will, and they'll, they'll obfuscate a little bit by saying there's no fetal cells in vaccines. That is a true statement. It's not whole cells. It's the residual cellular fragments that are left over after the virus replicates and bursts forth from the, from the cell that it's replicating in and cannot be purified away when the vaccine is harvested, when those, the virus in the, the adenovirus that is growing in those retinal cells of the 18-week fetus. Myself, as a fully devoted follower of Christ, I, I, when I learned this, and I didn't believe it at first either, and most people probably think that's crazy. Dr. Meehan doesn't know what he's talking about, but believe me, I've studied this for 20 years. We are not told. We're not provided full informed consent. And people that are receiving the Johnson & Johnson Janssen vaccine, they're not being told that. They're not being told that at all. And so I think you have a constitutionally protected um, legal justification for exemption. If you are a person of faith that finds it abominable, as I do, that you might be be injected with something that I just find abhorrent. Interesting. Okay. Uh, well, let's shift gears uh, a little bit and talk about the treatment of COVID. Um, right. There are, there which are is a- another, Greg, which is another reason why, why do we have to worry? Why do we have to submit ourselves to an experimental vaccine when we have really safe and highly effective treatments? Yeah. So there's, there's a handful of us doctors treating COVID out there and, and uh, I'm one of them. You're one Amen. of them. Uh, there's a high demand out there, as you and I both know, for people wanting treatment. They can't find it because there's not enough doctors. Not only that, uh, I'm, you know, we're getting ridiculed, uh, you know, for, for the way that we're treating, even though, as we were talking beforehand, you know, the current treatment right now is if you get COVID, if you go to the ER, they're going to say, good luck, go home. Uh, if you feel like you're going to die, if you can't breathe, come back, we'll admit you. But yet when we try to do good, and you and I have both seen great success in some people using things like ivermectin were ridiculed for it. So just talk about, uh, you know, some of your experiences with, with treating this uh, disease. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is the, I mean, this is the most telling part of the story, in my opinion, of what's going on, how much fraud and corruption is going on. Because I think our, our public health agencies are currently involved in this, this uh, another attempt to discredit a low cost, very highly effective medication, um, ivermectin, like they did with hydroxychloroquine, that fraudulent study in Lancet that we talked about meant to discredit hydroxychloroquine. Um, but the, you know, the big one for me, ivermectin is a game changer. It is a um, 47-year-old drug that has an incredible safety protocol or a profile. Um, historically, probably we're probably into the 6 billion um, prescriptions prescribed for ivermectin. Best we can um, understand or find in the medical literature, someplace between 14 and 16 uh, patients have died while um, being while using ivermectin in over 47 years and six billion some odd um, injections. And then you know you can comp- that drug has such an amazing safety profile. It has a um, and we now and they say that, like there's not enough studies or there's no studies. I've I've debated infectious disease doctors and hospitals um, that that have a patient that I'm contacted by the family to help with. And these infectious disease doctors tell me, well, you know, there's there's only one study and it was neutral. And I'm like, sir, I'm sorry, but, you know, 
get your computer out because we're going to go through about 113 of them right now. There's 113 studies. There's 63 trials, over 26,000 patients in these trials. There's 31 randomized controlled trials, and there's four meta-analyses that show that ivermectin used as a preventative um, decreases um, cases, infections by about 86%, used early, decreases duration and severity of illness by about 72%, decreases mortality by 58%. Imagine, Greg, if we could take the 6 million lives lost or whatever the number is now, um, and or the 600,000 lives lost in the United States and get 58% of them back with the appropriate treatment with a low cost, highly effective, safe medication like ivermectin. I mean, you treat early, you use it as a preventative or you treat early and you, you will not die from this disease. You, if you use it in conjunction with vitamin D, high, you know, pretty good doses of vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc quercetin to open up zinc channels and drive that zinc into the cells, um, you know, a baby aspirin, et cetera. So if you, you know, if you want to see how scientists and experts from all over the world have figured out what to do, what our public health agencies haven't even bothered, bothered to consider, go to the Frontline's Critical Care Alliance, the flccc.net. And you can see the protocols there. That's what we had to do in this pandemic is we had to stop um, parroting that, that what you said earlier. I've heard it a thousand times, Greg. Patients, you know, they, they start getting sick. They get a test. They find out they have um, COVID-19. They're positive. And they call their doctor and their doctor says, well, there's nothing we can do for you. Just go home, quarantine until you can't breathe, and then go to the hospital. Well, that's medical negligence at this point. We have, you know, we have ivermectin, we have hydroxychloroquine, fluvoxamine. Um, there's so many safe, low-cost therapeutics that are available right now, and, the, and they save lives. But we've got, currently, we have our FDA spending ridiculous amount of money trying to, you know, troll people on social media with this stuff. You're not a horse. Don't use ivermectin. They're, like, playing it off, like, you know, Ivermectin is just a veterinary drug. No, it's been a it's been a human drug that has saved more lives in third world countries from parasitic diseases than almost anything any other drug in the world, proven safe and effective. And it's FDA approved for those purposes. We can as physicians prescribe it off label. We can as physicians and scientists that took an oath to do no harm we can apply our understanding of pharmacokinetics and mechanisms of action, and we can say, um, wow, this, you know, it, this looks like, you know, based on in silica studies, it looks like this could block the SARS-CoV, bind to um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus and prevent it from binding to the ACE2 receptor. Uh, you know, it looks like both ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine can do that. Um, it, we also figured out that it looks like this could bind to the important um, protein, a, a, a protein in inside cells that the virus hijacks to enter the nucleus and kind of shut down the interferon system that signals infection in a cell. Ivermectin has about um, 17 to 22 mechanisms of action that make it a very useful therapeutic for a disease like um, SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. I mean, why are we not, you know, why are we not using it? Why is our FDA 
you know, sitting there um, trolling and 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 making it look like, well, in fact, you know, what they're they're railing against the use of veterinary medicines they are creating. You know, our public health agencies and and our you know AMA and pharmacy boards they're participating in a process that is going to leave people no other option but to you know go to the farm and tractor supply and and get you know veterinary medication instead of getting stuff that we can prescribe human drugs that's you know pennies a tablet um but they're all trying to they're trying to shut that down right now not because it's not safe not because it's not effective but because it destroys the business model of the pharmaceutical industry in fact it completely eliminates the emergency use authorization for the vaccine program yeah so i kind of have a two-part question one there's just Again, a, a handful of doctors that are, are treating aggressively as we are, and pharmacists, also a handful who are on board with this. Uh, yeah. But I feel like with all these govern, governing agencies coming against us, uh, you know, trying to shut this down, my first question is, A, how do we band together and, and right. what do we do? The, the second part of that question is, uh, from a patient perspective, what are patients to do? Because they have problems getting into us. They have problems getting into you because there's just so much demand and, and, and their yeah. doctors won't treat them even yeah. though they want to be treated. Um, what do patients do? Right. Well, yeah, I, the way I say it is, you know, um, allopathic and osteopathic medicine is committing suicide during this pandemic. They are discrediting themselves, you know, doctors that have not bothered to do the, the due diligence and read the research, those 113 um, research publications on ivermectin, you know, they are discrediting themselves. Um, but it is, that is changing slowly, not fast enough. But when I first joined the FLCCC, I was one, I was one of about five docs on the list of treating physicians. Now there's hundreds there. Um, it's multiple pages. And, you know, every time I look at it, I'm like, thank God, our profession is waking up. They're honoring their oath. And they're starting to realize just how they've been lied to. Now, I, I think that once you once you realize how how overtly you've been lied to, whether you're a doctor or you're just you know a, a patient, a member of the human population, once you see how egregiously this fraud and and you know this menticide, this mass psychosis, this manipulation of the of the public psyche. Um, to believe that, you know, there is no treatment. Ivermectin is a veterinary medicine that's uh, horrible for you. You know, once they realize how big of a, how many big lies they've been told, I think that's going to be a, a big game changer, Greg. I think a lot of people, well, I, I, I don't know, see if you agree with me. I think people are waking up during this pandemic. A lot of people that were asleep, complacent, sitting on the fence, didn't really care, comfortable in their, you know, um, Krispy Kreme's Mountain Dew and McDonald's, you know, binge watching the view. I think even them, even they are starting to wake up and realize, man, there's something really, something really wrong here. And, and so I think that's how you, I think they've overreached and overstepped and gone too far. No doubt. Um, and, and so I think that's gonna, I think that's creating a lot of momentum and a lot of people are saying, I mean, I've had physicians contact me and say, you know, when I first started seeing your stuff on Facebook or Twitter, I thought you were, you know, a quack. 
And, but you always put, you know, I always post the references and the science that supports my position. And, and I've, I've had a hundred of these conversations now where they're like, man, I get it. You know, you were right. I was locked in this state of, you know, believing that I, I should trust the CDC and that, you know, pharma is doing all this great research. I had no idea that we're paying for all the research and they're spending most of their money, you know, advertising it. Um, you know, pharma, they don't make money on curing people. They make money on, on treating sick people. And it's almost like they're, you know, they're just, they make us sick with a lot of their drugs and then they create drugs to treat, you know, those, the sicknesses that they've created. The vaccine is going to be a huge business model. We're going to see autoimmune disease, um, you know, all kinds of chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, just autoimmune nightmares. If not, I mean, I'll tell you, um, I have several patients that are, are suffering severely and may not make it from antibody dependent enhancement. Um, the, the, the nightmare of coronavirus vaccines, which we've always seen every time we tried to create, every time they have tried to create a coronavirus vaccine, you know, we find that the vaccinated animals, when challenged with the wild type virus, develop this robust you know, destructive cytokine storm that we call antibody dependent enhancement. The virus actually uses antibodies to increase its in, um, invasive infectious potential and, and inflammatory damage process. And I've got a, I've got a 50 year old orthopedic surgeon, totally healthy, great, you know, a specimen of health, got vaccinated with a Moderna vaccine and within 72 hours, his immune system turned on his white blood cells and he's, he's dying like a AIDS patient right now, 43 year old nurse for, you know, well, 15 weeks now, um, the most disabling headaches that she's ever had and, and, you know, can't function, can't work. They've done every study on, uh, you know, uh, in medicine to try to figure out what's going on. And by the way, all of the doctors kind of dealing with the situation, completely trying to deny that it's a vaccine injury. And, you know, so that th these, these two are um, two of many that are already starting to suffer antibody dependent enhancement. I think it's very clear. This is my background. Antibody dependent enhancement, mark my words, will be a nightmare in the coming months and years. Interesting. Well, so you don't think masks work well, you're not for the vaccine. So yeah. if you can take over Dr. Fauci's position for a while, what is Dr. Meehan's solution to this pandemic? How do we get through this? Yeah, right. So, well, the first thing that we do is we build walls of protection, not literally, but figuratively protection around our most susceptible individuals in the population. So I think if you are, uh, if you are um, obese, you have metabolic disease, um, you, you have an anxiety fear disorder that those are the top three that the CDC study of 500,000 people saw. If you have the risk of any infectious disease, you, you start prophylaxing with either hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. You take um, therapeutic uh, FLCCC type levels of vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, quercetin, melatonin at night, NAC, et cetera. You, you really bolster the health of your immune system. You take a ivermectin, you have it on board. So when that virus shows up and Delta variant will show up, almost everybody's going to encounter it at some point 
until we have long-lasting, durable, natural immunity developing in the population, then you protect yourself with ivermectin and you are knowledgeable and know you have a physician that knows how to treat you at the first signs of disease, you move into the early treatment protocol and, and you're watched closely. We can keep people out of the hospital. India is doing it. Peru has done it. Mexico has done it. Every place that they have used I, ivermectin, zinc, um, doxycycline or azithromycin as they did in India, they have shut down this pandemic based on a number of studies now, um, uh, research papers anyway, but we believe that we could shut down the pandemic with, by using these preventive and early treatment therapeutics like ivermectin. So I would protect all the susceptibles. I would, I would treat them with um, preventative dosing and I'd get people out of mass. I would get them out of this fear state. I would, get, I would stop the fear mongering. There's nothing worse for your immune system than being in a state of anxiety and fear. And I would do what we've done with all other pandemics. Uh, I was three years old when I was infected with the, with the Hong Kong flu. That's you know not pol politically correct, but that's what they called it back in 1968. And I survived it and I became a part of the defense for everybody else. So, you know, that's one of many things, but I would definitely get the mask off the population. I don't want them to be increasing their risk and their viral load by wearing a mask when Delta comes floating by and flows right past or through or around that mask. Yep. You know, I've mentioned several times that at the beginning of this, if the authorities would have come out and said, you know, you are at much higher risk. Of, uh, from complications with COVID, if you are metabolically unhealthy, as well as if your vitamin D levels are low. Absolutely. And, and, and you can change your metabolism. You can improve your metabolism uh, with simple steps in a very short time. And, right. and, you know, now you're not going to be perfect, but you can make some changes in a very short time. And so if they would have come out early and just said those two things and said, okay, this is how you improve your metabolism. That's right. Okay, let, let's, let's use this as a platform to get healthy as a country. And this is how you improve your metabolism. Just those two simple things. Think of how many hundreds of thousands of lives could have been saved. And that's never been said, even still, I have not heard that once the public authorities come out. In say, fact, you know, I, I, I see our public health agency spending more time trying to dismiss vitamin D and vitamin C yeah. than they ever did saying, look, you know, people of color, um, African-American high melanin skin content, you need more vitamin D. That's why this disease can be more dangerous yeah. in, in your population. You need more vitamin D. Um, if we had simply done that, Greg, my goodness, that could have made all the difference in the world. I mean, I had COVID-19 early in the pandemic before we had hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin or anything else. And it was, I just mega dosed, I call it the ACD hammer. I mega dosed vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin D. I took, you know, extra zinc and NAC and glutathione. And it was a day and a half of a mild cold. My whole family had it. I've had, I had many patients during that time frame that we were treating with just you know, nutritional supplements that were readily available. And, and, and it's been shown to be very effective, but I was kicked off Facebook for talking about vitamin D and vitamin C. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't No, the, <laughs> the fabricated false narrative of this, you know, fraudulent consensus in science. That's what we've been dealing with. It was 
they created this consensus science. They called it the science, follow the science. But man, that's not, they weren't following the science and they're, you know, the, the evidence that they, they have been lying this whole time, it's overwhelming. And, yeah. you know, doctors like you and I and many more every day, we're starting to figure out that we can save lives. We can prevent significant disease. And, um, you know, we don't have to be, gosh, so many people are so terrified of this yeah. virus and they're doing everything wrong. They're isolating in their homes. You know, they're wearing a mask all the time. You know, they're wearing a mask in their home and in their car. And, you know, even if they happen to go outside, for goodness sake, to get some sun and exercise and they're wearing a mask, man, whoever, you know, convinced them to do that, they should be held accountable for that. And, you know, and Fauci's one of them, two mask Fauci. Yeah, no science on any of that stuff. But the the harm that that isolation has caused on the population, the number of, of suicides and deaths of despair and despondency, that's on our public health agencies. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, for sure. Well, okay. So if people want to reach out to you, um, mehanmd.com, that's uh, M-E-E-H-A-N-M-D.com. Yes, sir. Um, and that's where your book is. So if you want to download the free ebook, which is why wearing masks make healthy, makes healthy people sick. Um, right. So are you on any other social media? Or is that the best way to? Yeah, I'm, on, I'm, I'm back on Facebook and um, I'm back on Twitter at, uh, at Meehan underscore MD and on Facebook at, at Doc Meehan. And uh, the other things that I would just, if I could, Greg, I would just like to say, you know, follow some news sources. Here's the ones that I recommend um, or in websites. Go to flccc.net. Go to americasfrontlinedoctors.com. And um, I think it's aflds.org as well. Um, watch The High Wire, Dell Big Trees, The High Wire. I found it to be one of the most evidence-based, well-done. You or it's not, they're not on YouTube anymore, but the, the highwire.com. It's a great resource. It's probably some of the best journalism that I'm seeing out there. And then I think Children's Health Defense, you know, Robert F. Kennedy's, um, those are great. Those are great resources to get the truth that you're never going to get from the mainstream media because they are one, you know, they're 100% owned by industry at this point. And all they're doing is, you know, they're, I call them the mockingbird media. They're just manipulating the population into this state of fear and anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. They really are. I heard something a couple of weeks ago that um, is either 95 or 98% of those hospitalized with COVID were unvaccinated. And oh yeah. So, so I, text, I texted a friend. Yeah. Statistics. So I texted a yeah. friend of mine who's a hospitalist and he, you right. know, he, and, and I was like, is this true? And he, he was like, no, it's not even close. Absolutely <laughs> not. No. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, well, this has been great. I um, appreciate all the information and, and appreciate everything you're doing. Um, I always end my podcast by asking my guests if they could leave us with one health tip that would make us healthier today, what would you say to that? Yeah, well, based on what we've talked about today, I would say, you know, get your vitamin D levels up to, yeah. uh, you know, at least above 60. Personally, I believe that it needs to be 80 to 90 range. That's exactly so what I need, tell people. Yep. Yes, 80, 80 yeah. to 100 is what I say. Yep. And, and, you know, the best way to do that is free. It's get some sun. I got you and I have pretty good tans because I think we understand the importance of that. It's not vanity, it's health. Get some sun on your skin, but get that vitamin D level up. It has 
thousands of important um, chemical processes and supporting so many um, elements in your body. That would be my, my one major thing. The other thing I would say is don't isolate, just get out. You got to love your neighbor. Um, you, we need to become neighbors again and not allow this division to, to, you know, lead to where they're trying to divide and conquer us. And we've got, that's the best way to oppose it is get out and hug somebody again. And, um, you, you know, you, if your vitamin D levels are up, you don't have to worry about this virus. Yeah. 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 Couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, I, I hit them hard with vitamin D when they get COVID, but I tell patients, man, it'd be so much better if your vitamin D levels were high before you get the disease. That's so, a fact. That's yeah. a fact. Yeah. Very good. Well, Dr. Jim Meehan, uh, certainly appreciate it and, uh, appreciate you guys listening. Hope you got a lot, of, a lot out of this and we will uh, talk to you guys next time. Thank you for listening to FitRx. I invite you to share this with friends and family. If you would like, you can check out our website at vibrantlifedc.com or you can email me at drgreg at vibrantlifedc.com.